Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Produced and released in the 1990s, Bix Ain't None of Them Play Like Him Yet is the work of Academy Award-winning director Bridget Berman. It chronicles the life and the music of coronetist, pianist, and composer Leon Bix Beiderbecke, regarded by many as jazz's man who got away. Born in Davenport, Iowa, into an upper-middle-class family, Beiderbecke became a legend even in his short lifetime bringing an amazing new energy and unprecedented maturity to the music and influencing generations of musicians. This is a remarkable documentary film. It's called Bix. Ain't none of them play like him yet. And we're joined today by the director of the film, and that would be Bridget Berman. Bridget, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted to be here in New York. It's fabulous. And here we are. It's very exciting for me because, you know, obviously I love this music. I love history. I love recording history and giving it its due musically and also what it was like in those days. And um, I would like to reintroduce this to a new generation because I believe that um, it's a wonderful thing to know about your country, your history and, and music, all the amazing music that has existed and those fabulous musicians. Yeah, absolutely. It, uh, I'll just say, personally, I only knew his name. And after watching this film, I feel like I want to know more about his music. I know a lot about him now, but I want to find out and and seek out the opportunity to listen to his music. Uh, the film is called Bix. Ain't none of them play like him yet. And where did that quote come from? That's a quote from someone. Yes, it is. Um, Louis Armstrong, who was a friend of Bix, and uh, they would um, play together after hours. And uh, this is what Louis Armstrong said about Bix. I mean, he said more things about Bix in the film, but to his mind, there has had not at that time been anyone to equal the tone, the musicianship, uh, the sound, everything that Bix just uh, miraculously does with this horn. It's fantastic. And it just seems to come outside, out from within, like, you know, like it bursts open. And uh, he's he's a magician with the cornet. And I still believe he is. And um, I wanted to tell you about, though, what you said about wanting to hear more about Bix's music. When I showed Richard Basehart, the narrator, who's now long gone, the film, I, I flew down to L.A. with my film cans, you know, on the plane and uh, many film cans, showed it to him. He never said a word as I was running it through the Steenbeck. And I thought, oh my God, he's not going to like it. What am I going to do, you know? And when the film finished, he looked at me and he said, all I can say is I wish I had heard him in person. And I knew immediately what he meant and how he felt. And I, you know, he was the right person to do the, the narration and we, hustled off to the studio, did the narration, and he's brilliant in the narration, I believe. Yeah. Well, let's back up a, a little bit and talk about Leon Bix Beiderbecke uh, and his background. He was born in the 20th century, 
Um, he lived a, a short but eventful life. But let's talk a little bit about where he came from. He was born in Davenport, Iowa in 1903 um, from German um, parentage, uh, so to speak, and very, very strict household. His mother was a pianist, so he had that musical influence from her. And, um, you know, he would, Davenport is right on the edge of the Mississippi River, and all the steamboats would come up with the sounds of, of music, you know, and King Oliver um, and, and Louis Armstrong and Bix was exposed to that music and it hooked him. And, um, and so he bought a cornet at a very early age. He played a piano when he was like five years old and he would make money as he was playing the piano for people. He was pretty, you know, he was pretty adventurous. And, uh, and then he bought a cornet from his friend Fritz, Fritz Poutier, who I, who I interview in the film, is fantastic. And, um, and then he played with them. He never, at least at that time, he didn't know how to read music. So he was rejected by the union and could not join Fritz Poutier's band. Eventually he learned just enough about reading so he could pass the union test but everything, he never read, he never read all of his solos, everything just came out of him. And, uh, you know, his, his parents, he went to high school in, um, in, in Davenport, not really very much interested in school at all. And um, so eventually his father sent him to Lake Forest Academy, hoping that that school would straighten him out. And well, Lake Forest, very close to Chicago, Bix immediately spent more time in Chicago than in Lake Forest, and they expelled him. And he headed off for, for Chicago and um, was on his way. It's, a, it's quite a remarkable story. Born in 1903, and he is dead by 1931, uh, 28 years old. But as you said, in the time he lived, he, he burned brightly um, in many, many ways. He certainly... He had a gift for for being able to listen to music and then to be able to play it back. So many of these great musicians, you hear these stories about they could hear a tune once and they could play it back to you. And that seems to be in the same vein as Bix, that talent that he had, that that gift and something that he seemed to really appreciate from the film. Bix, ain't none of them play like him yet. It seems like he was just destined to play music and he overcame some of the family reservations about it. It just seemed like it was all he all he wanted to do. It, you know, it just it's an amazing story. And the fact that he uh, fell in love with jazz, which at that time was a relatively new music form. It certainly is that a fair way to say Absolutely. it? You're, yeah, fantastic. Yes, you're right. And there was this divide, maybe it's not, that's may not be the exact right word, where you were hearing the white musicians playing jazz, and then you would be hearing black musicians playing jazz. And uh, that seemed to be more of the Chicago uh, branch of jazz, the sort of the, the more of the African-American jazz. If I could interrupt for a moment. Yeah. After hours, after hours, they played together. Absolutely no divide, you know, and... Bix, like many other musicians, he was colorblind. You know, yeah. to him, music is music. A musician is a musician, you know, like, and, and what do you sound like? What are you doing with your in musical instrument? That's what he cared about. Yeah, and I, that, that's where I was going, was that he 
didn't care. But it did seem like there was the Paul Whiteman's of the world, and then there was the Louis Armstrong's of the world. And they and and, and not to disparage either one, they they had a certain there was a certain style, but there's a scene. I, I gotta point this out because it's just absolutely mind-boggling that uh that film clip of Bessie Smith singing. I, I teared up watching it. <laughs> I think I'm gonna do that again because it's incredibly moving. And to hear uh, I don't know if this is a fair distinction between sort of the more the wider form of jazz and black jazz was that the black jazz was seemed to be much more emotional. It is it, its roots were in blues and jazz. There was sort of that crossover. It's just an incredible film clip. It, it It's yeah. I will ask you how you came across all of this footage, but I just want to kind of give people the context. And here's Bix, who doesn't care where the music is, as I believe it was uh, uh, Duke Ellington who said, there are only two types of music. There's good music and there's bad music. You bet, yes. And, that, and that's kind of where Bix was. That kind of, that is where Bix was. And it's just, it's just remarkable. So talk a little bit about his, the way he approached music uh, in that, as you said, he, he wasn't formally trained. He didn't write music. But he but, had that's right. But he composed piano compositions. Okay. That his friend Bill Chalice, the arranger for the Gene Goldcat Orchestra and for the Paul Whiteman Orchestra, he would write it down. And the interesting thing was that when Bix would play either by cornet or piano, it would always be different because he played from his soul, as I said before. And so um, Bill Chalice told him, and I have this in the film, that once he writes down the way Bix plays it he's got to continue to play it that way because that's the way the music, you know, the, the people, the, the audience knows music like that, um, played in that, in that vein and keep it like that. But uh, Bix, you know, like he was the free spirit to him, music was music. And as long as you told your story via music, via the playing, that's what it was all about. Well, there's an array of great jazz musicians in the film, Hoagie Carmichael, Doc Cheatham, Artie Shaw, and many, many others in the film. And they talk about be the experience of hearing him and talk a little bit about how he impressed other musicians in the way that he played his tone. He didn't play the same solo twice. I mean, there's a whole lot of things about him that made him so compelling. If you, if you could just kind of, yeah, Doc Cheatham, for instance, who, you know, of course, was an incredible trumpet player with the with he was black. And again, another person who was very much a friend of Bix's. And as far as he was concerned, um, hearing Bix and and listening to Bix, it elevated jazz music. It took it to another plane and and, you know, just to listen and then to and then to kind of play along with it it brought everybody else on that same plane and people wanted to play with him, wanted to be with him because he was that spark. And everybody said that as, as soon as he was with the band, the band sounded different, especially when he was playing on his own small orchestras. Paul Whiteman was a different story. With Paul Whiteman, the big orchestra, you know, like all these various instruments where Bix would shine there would be in the solos. And, you know, Paul just, you know, here's your solo, Bix and you go and you play and Bix would play. And I, on the, you know, when I'm showing the film Friday evening, 
I have new footage that thanks to my two friends, um, Mark Cantor and Bob DeFlores, um, jazz enthusiasts and jazz collectors, um, I was able to track down this new footage, which wasn't around in, when I made the film. You see Paul Whiteman conducting his orchestra. On comes the time for the solo. Big stands up. He's in the far left corner and he does his solo. And you can just see like he breaks in, he, he plays it. What I found so interesting, though, is that as Biggs begins to play, he looks at Paul Whiteman. So he was not a musician who kind of just went off on his own and didn't care what everybody else did. He, he actually, he was there to also support Paul Whiteman. He wanted to see, you know, like, what are you, what are you, is, is this okay? Are you, is this what you want me to do? I, I liked that sense of wanting to be part of the complete sound of the orchestra and that respect he paid to Paul Whiteman. And it's, it's for me phenomenal to actually see him do this short solo. We're going to show it after the film. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. It, it, well, let's again uh, talk about how the film was got a small short release back in 1981. Have I got that right? And yes. And uh, and how those who saw it at the time proclaimed it to be some were saying the greatest documentary of, about jazz music ever produced the the accolades were fast and furious about how what a wonderful achievement uh this is and i concur i it is an older style of what were the sort of documentary film making and the the, the ways that we sort of deliver uh documentaries now have evolved over time this is definitely in a in a you know that's sort of, of of an era that it came from but it's so solid. I mean, there's just so much here about it. This is the thing I was, as I'm watching, I'm just thinking, this is just exactly what you would want to know about him and why he was, why he was so impactful and the people who you were, who it's such great to see these people who were, who were uh, peers of, of Bix talking about him in real time, what they witnessed firsthand. It's, it's just a really beautiful film to watch. And I'm just saying this to our audience because you may not have ever even heard of Bix Biderbeck ever. And, and you don't even, you don't even know who he is or what he, what he was a part of. You will want to watch this because this, you could, in addition to the fact that he was such a good musician and that he's bridged this sort of divide between the black jazz of the era and the white jazz of the era, you can hear all of the progression of jazz in his playing. You can see it up till the birth of cool Miles Davis. You can hear it in him playing. You say that beautifully. I could not agree with you more. In fact, I love the way you describe that. Thank you for that. Truly. You're welcome. And thank you. I wouldn't be able to say it if it weren't for the fact that this is just such a really well-made uh, film about an incredible musician. Um, we're speaking with Bridget Berman. She is the director, producer, writer, editor of this film. Is that, am I giving you due credit on all that? All good. <laughs> okay, good. And, and you have uh, an Academy Award winning uh, director from, you're Canadian. And uh, not that that matters. I don't even know why I said that. But, 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 uh, but, and you have produced an awful lot of great work over the course of your career. 
Um, when you made this film, not over yet. <laughs> that's right. That's just true. I, that's right. But when you made this film and you, it was ready for release in 1981, um, what were your expectations at that time when the film was was coming out? You know, it was it was like my labor of love. The, the love went into the making of the film. And um, when it was shown for the first, when I showed it in New York for the first time, I was terrified of the audience. Um, I'd never shown a film before. And so I couldn't even introduce it myself. I had um, somebody else introduce it. And I was in the projection booth watching it from there. But um, I was, you know, I was wanted to get it into festivals and it went to London, England. It was really well received there. And uh, Channel 4 showed it and Swedish um, Film Institute bought it, released it in Scandinavia, a theatrical release, which was fantastic. So, and in New York, it was shown once on PBS, the, the small New York station, and that was it. And in, in Canada, it was shown, you know, on TV across the country. But, but um, and, and I was hoping for that. I was hoping for the film festivals. I was hoping for the accolades. Didn't expect what had happened to it. And then I, uh, as I, as I was, this was happening, I also had met, I interviewed Artie Shaw for this film. And I, when I showed it in LA, I invited Artie Shaw to come to see it. And I did a press screening for him and for Charles Champlin, the LA Times critic. So, and that kind of um, uh, began my, my friendship with Artie Shaw because he was so impressed by the film that he invited me out for dinner and wanted to know what I was going to do next. And I looked at him and I said, well, I'd like to do a film about you, Mr. Shaw. And he asked me why I told him why, and he agreed. And so I moved directly into the making of the Artie Shaw film, which, you know, probably I should have not done it so quickly, but you have to go with the moment because then I, I kind of let the Bix film kind of rest and remain on its own. And, um, you know, and the Artie Shaw film, of course, kind of really, um, you know, became quite an extraordinary film that I'm very proud of and then won the Academy Award. So, um, you know, I, I'm, which is why today, I think I kind of neglected the Bix film. It's like an orphan to me. And so I now have to reclaim it. And that's why I'm bringing it out and I'm restoring it. So, you know, here we are. Yeah. Nine years later after Bix Beidebeck's death. Yeah, and your the Academy Award winning film about Artie Shaw is Artie Shaw, Time is All You've Got, and uh, also you did a film called The Circle Game, as well. And you said, and as you continue your career moving forward, that is fantastic. Uh, and for anyone who's listening to the sound of our voices, if you're a dis film distributor, this film really, really deserves a, a, a an airing. And for people who are at all interested in music and jazz and very interesting biographies about people who had a tremendous influence on their craft, on their on the people around them. This slots very nicely into that into that particular uh, place. And it's uh, I'm so glad because I I I assume that in the archives of music somewhere there was kind of a compilation of his work and i can't wait to listen to it uh more of it and uh i there's some there's just a few of these scenes in the film where you actually hear these solos and you hear and we've got the benefit of the people in the film who are telling you why this is just a cut above why does this feel different to them and they're hearing it and I forgot who it, it is. 
that was talking about just how spontaneous and creative and as you said never the same solo twice but he always found a place he always found that a way to tell it differently right absolutely no no he he had much he had a lot to give and a lot to tell and he told it through his music well he lived fast and he lived hard yes and and which is i mean it's it's sad i mean there's no other way to put it it's sad uh, that alcohol seemed to be his his one device. Otherwise, people really seemed to like him. He seemed to be a, a generous person. Talk a little bit about him as a person. Um, well, you know, uh, people wanted to be friends with him. And uh, Gene Krupa once said, the drummer, the famous drummer, he said, you know, and he said, I have it in the film, if you didn't get, if you couldn't get along with Bix, you couldn't get along with anyone. Yeah. Um, he was, he was, incredibly generous to his friends in, and, you know, and, and bought meals for them. He would, he would support them when he had money. He shared that money. Um, he never, he never, he was never stingy or with anything. Stinginess was not part of who he was. Generosity in spirit, in music, in money, in everything. That was who he was, but he also fell under the, you know, influence of alcohol and, um, one of the problems was it was prohibition time. So alcohol was not very good stuff and it was not good for your system. And people would also hound him in his hotel room, get, taking him out to, to play. You know, the big thing was that they could say to their other friends, I heard him play. I could hear him and listen to him. And he could not say no to anybody. He never could say no. Unlike Artie Shaw, who was very easy for him to say no. Bix couldn't say no. So that carried him off into these places and he drank and he drank and eventually he stopped drinking. Um, he moved to sunny to Sunnyside and to a new, and to a new place and uh, met a girl, was going to get married, wrote home to his parents about her. And, um, you know, and unfortunately um, he had, he, he was ill he had pneumonia and uh, he went to play in spite of it because he was never one to let anybody down. Um, and uh, he, his pneumonia got worse and he died. So, and as Pee Wee Russell said about him in the film too, Bix didn't die of a cold. He died of everything. Yeah. And his sisters in the film to kind of talk a little bit about the family and, and their, their history and their background. Uh, as you said, German immigrants came to America and made their way and yeah, fortunately well. yeah yes. very yeah did well yeah and fortunately for us uh bix found a piano <laughs> yes and, yeah his mother <laughs> his mother his mother yes. right right and and so on and so forth and it's all in the film be looking for this because i know this will find a distributor i know this will be available and you should be looking for it bix Ain't none of them play like him yet. That is a quote from Louis Armstrong there. That is a, an important part of the film that the relationship that they had and he recognized he could hear it. Louis could. Absolutely. He knew he, it. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. He heard it. He was, he was a true, 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 true artist himself. And uh, he could hear it. Anyway, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to meet you, to talk to you. Thank you for all your insight. I really, you know, the things that you've said, they were fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. The, uh, we've been talking with the director. Uh, that would be Bridget Berman. Bix, 
ain't none of them play like him. I wish you all the best and and the best to Bix moving forward as well. <laughs> okay. You bet. Okay. Thank, and thank you. you so much. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Thank you.